Several uh, weeks ago, our six-year-old son, uh, his name is Will, burst into our bedroom uh, in the middle of the night, and uh, he had the lights in the whole house on, and uh, apparently he had a bad dream or something, so he came into our room, and uh, we were trying to work through some things with him, and uh, Peggy said, Will, we need you to go turn off the lights. And he said, you need me to get my pillow? I said, no, Will, you need to go turn off the lights. I have to brush my teeth? I'm not kidding you. Will, you need to go turn off the lights. And finally, it like registers on him, and he goes and turns off the lights. I think that's a pretty good picture of how the disciples are feeling about this point in the Gospel of John, don't you think? We're in a series, if you're visiting with us this morning, where we're walking through the Gospel of John together as a church. We've called this series Encountering Christ because what we're doing is looking at different encounters Jesus had throughout John's Gospel and trying to learn what we can discover from those encounters. And in the last month or so, if you've been a part of it, we are in Jesus' last encounter, if you will, with his disciples before his crucifixion. And today, uh, even though we have the benefit of hindsight, I I just want to say, I don't think we fully understand just how confused the disciples were. I think we look back and go, well, what was their problem? But they were experiencing misery and confusion and doubt on this last night with Jesus. Quite honestly, if you choose to follow along on your notes uh, during the messages, that first line there is that the disciples are confused by what Jesus is telling them. Like Will, they are thinking this must all be a really bad dream. And they can't figure out what's happening. In fact, we know this is true uh, because of the section of Scripture we're coming to this morning, which is John 16, starting in verse 16. And we do this every week, uh, but I'm going to invite you to take your Bible and turn to that passage with us. We want to be first-handers of God's Word here. It's good to get our fingers on the text. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, that's okay. We provide them in the seat in front of you as well. I encourage you, if you don't have one, take one of the red Bibles there in the seat in front of you. Find John. It's about four-fifths of the way back uh, in the Bible. John. John 16, verse 16 is what we're looking at today. Now, I might be dating myself here, but how many of you remember that Abbott and Costello bit, who's on first? Have you ever at least seen that? You know, where they're going back on first, who's on first? Yeah, who's on first? And they're going back and forth and back and forth. Well, I think that's a little bit about what we get here in the first three verses of John 16, starting in verse 16. Tell me if you don't agree as I read these. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant by when I said in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? I mean, is that not great or what? They just don't get it. I'm sure that's how many of you respond to my sermons. What is he talking about? Now, I've thought about this, these verses, uh, quite a bit this week because I didn't quite understand why did John include them here? I mean, it just seems like a little bit of extra material to get to the good stuff, right? I mean, did these verses actually have a point? And it dawned on me for the very first time uh, reading this text, and this may or may not be right, but it dawned on me. I believe there is a crucial point that John made sure we understood that the disciples were confused. And the reason for that is there is no way on earth that a few brilliant people came up with the idea of Christianity. 
Have you ever heard that before? That the apostles, after the fact that Jesus died, they made all this stuff up, right? These brilliant human beings decided, hey, well, our movement ended, but let's figure out a way to continue this movement going. Now listen, in the very basic doctrine, the doctrine of Christianity, the death and resurrection of Christ, they have no clue what's going on. They are totally in the dark, totally confused. The writer of the gospel we're studying is one of them, John, the apostle, and he freely admits here, I'm confused. I'm confused about the very center of our faith, which it would become, right? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. No, there's no way. There is no way that Christianity was started by a few brilliant human beings. They didn't even know what was happening. They didn't even know what was happening. And we can also see that can't be true because we see the tremendous amount of grief that they experience after the fact, right? And really, that's what Jesus is preparing them for in this passage this morning. Let's read verse 20 out loud together on our notes. Would you read it with me? It says, I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. You're about to go to a funeral. And it's mine. And look, all our enemies, all the people who have been opposed to us are going to think this is the greatest day ever. Finally, we've gotten rid of this lunatic, this blasphemer, claiming to be God. But Jesus says, there's a day coming when your grief will be turned into joy. I want you to notice that word turn. It's very significant. You may even want to circle it. Notice the word is not replace or substitute. Jesus says he will turn or transform our sorrow into joy. That is such an important distinction for us to make today because we live in a society that says joy is incompatible with sorrow. Right? Those two things cannot exist together, but that's not what Jesus teaches. Jesus teaches that God can turn our sorrow that can transform our sorrow, our hardest things in life. He can use those things and transform those into joy. He doesn't always replace our sorrows, but he can use our sorrows and hardship as opportunities to turn them into joy. Or if you're following on your notes, the promise is that even in our hardships, we can have joy. Even in our hardships, we can have joy. Do you believe that? Or are they mutually exclusive? Jesus is going to go on into this section of Scripture to explain three reasons why his disciples then and us still today can have joy even in the most difficult circumstances. Let's pray. Lord, I needed this passage of Scripture probably more than anybody else in this room this morning, but I have a feeling we all need it. In this world, we have trouble. Everyone in this room can say, I I agree to that. And yet here you have laid out the most amazing promise that even in our trouble, we can experience joy. You did it for us. And so now I pray that you'll open up our hearts and our minds, Jesus, to receive what you have planned for us to receive this morning. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first reason we can have joy if you're following there on your notes, is because Jesus has given birth to a whole new way of life. 
Jesus has given birth to a whole new way of life. To explain this, Jesus uses this powerful illustration in verse 21. Look at what it says. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Now listen, what does that mean? As any woman here who has given birth can testify. After the baby is born, your pain is not forgotten, is it? You remember the pain and the grief that it caused, but, here's that word again, your grief is turned, transformed into joy, right? I mean, think of it this way. What caused the woman's pain? The baby. What cause is the woman's joy? The very same baby. It's a powerful illustration of what Jesus is getting across to us here. In fact, he explains in verse 22 how this relates to us. Let's read it out loud together. It says, So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. Right here, Jesus is clearly speaking about what? The centerpiece of our faith, his cross and resurrection. The cross, he says, is going to be a moment of intense grief, not only for him, but for the disciples as well. For us as well. God on the cross for my sake. And yet, three days later, that grief is transformed into inexpressible joy as he bursts forth from the grave. He, think about it this way, he gives birth in his resurrection to a whole new reality a whole new life right we talked about this months ago in this series uh, way back do you remember in john chapter 3 when jesus had an encounter with a man named nicodemus nicodemus was a religious leader he was as upright as it comes and he believed that the better he was the more closely he would get to the kingdom of god and jesus put an end to that he said no you got to be what born again <laughs> If you want to spend eternity with God, you've got to be born again. Nicodemus is confused by this because his whole world system was based on it. Well, if I'm the most religious person, well, God's going to honor that. Jesus says, no, no, no. You need to die to that and be born a second birth. And we talked about how just like physical birth means we pass from one environment into another, right? It's not always painless. In spiritual birth, the same thing happens. We pass from one environment, from one life, into another kind of life. And just like physical birth, it cannot be done for us. It can't be done for us. In fact, if you're falling on your notes there, being born again is not something we can do ourselves. And you remember in that encounter, Nicodemus doesn't grasp this. I don't understand. And Jesus says, listen, there's going to be a day when I'll be lifted up on the cross. And at that moment, you look to me. You look to me and you trust your life that what I have done has opened up a whole new reality for you. I have given birth, if you will, to new life for all those who will trust in me. And we looked at how Nicodemus, I think at the end of his life, he finally gets it. Just trust me, Nicodemus, that my death and resurrection has opened up a new possibility, a new life for you. It has opened up the ability for you to experience joy, inexpressible joy. What, what is joy? When you think of the word joy, I mean, what, what kind of definitions do you come with? 
How about simply the definition of Christianity? The gospel is the best definition I've ever seen of joy. What is the gospel? Well, uh, very simply, the gospel is where we have individuals like us who were created by an infinite yet personal God, but we lost our stance with God. We lost this relationship he always intended us to have with him because of our sin. But that very same infinite personal God took our sin upon himself on the cross And by doing that, he opened up a whole new way of life for us. He has written our names in the book of life, we're told, when we trust in his work. He has raised us from enemies to sons and daughters of the Most High God. He promises, he promises that in his providential purposes, he will use even our hardships, he'll use our sorrows. He'll use our pain and our suffering, and he will use those things to transform us so that we might experience joy. And in the end, he says, I'm going to take you to be with me, to enjoy fellowship with me forever and ever where there is no more pain, no more suffering, no more crying, and there I am going to make you a co-heir and conqueror with my son, Jesus Christ. That's okay, isn't it? I mean, can you do better than that in describing joy? He took the grief of the cross. He opened up a whole new life for us as his followers. That's why this kind of birth is even better than a physical birth. Not to get too depressing here, but every baby that is ever born, including myself, is going to die. But the promise Jesus gives us here, if you're following on your notes, unlike a physical birth, Our new birth will have no end. Our new birth will have no end. He says, no one will ever take away your joy. Do you have that? Do you have the joy of new birth? Have you passed from death into life? It's yours for the taking. Second reason we can have joy even in our hardships, if you're following, is because Jesus has given us direct access to the Father. Jesus has given us direct access to the Father. Would you read verse 23 out loud with me on your notes? It says, In that day you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth. My Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. I'm going to continue through verse 27. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Those are some packed statements right there, right? But can I filter through and get to the heart of what Jesus just said? He basically just said, there is no longer a need for an intermediary between you and the Father. Because of my work, because of the grief that I went through, your relationship with the Father has been, here's this word again, turned, transformed into something entirely different. Matthew explained the moment this happened so wonderfully. You know these verse potentially, Matthew 27, 51. At that moment, the moment Jesus died, 
The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks split. What's going on there? The moment Christ's body was torn in two, so too was the curtain in the temple that separated sinful human beings from a holy God. In Him, we have now been given direct access into the throne room of the Most High God. You know, I... Uh, thought about, I was thinking about how do you illustrate this incredible news? And I remember this picture. I wasn't alive when John F. Kennedy was president, and I realize anytime you put up a picture or make an analogy, there's going to be some shortcomings. But I think a lot of us probably remember this picture from when he was president. You remember that? The real famous picture. There, John F. Kennedy is in the Oval Office at his throne room, if you will, sitting at his desk. And I just love that. His son at his feet. He's playing with a truck or cars or something. I I don't know what your picture of when I say you have been given direct access to the Father, but I think it's a lot more like this than it is some of the pictures that we've concocted as human beings. I mean, you know how it is in the world today. If if you want to meet with somebody really important, you have to go through all kinds of hoops, right? I mean, if I want to meet with a very important person of Company X, I call Company X, and they will direct me to the proper, uh, the proper place where that person works. And at that place, they'll direct me to the very important person's personal secretary. And very important person's secretary may or may not think I'm important enough to actually schedule an appointment with very important person. And that appointment is probably going to be in a month. <laughs> not so with the most important person in the entire world. He invites you whenever you want into his presence to come to him you know we've tried as human beings even after we know all this to create these systems of hierarchies or i have to still go through certain people in order to have access to god right i mean we still are being taught some of this stuff today but these verses are abundantly clear he has given us direct access to the father and the reason for that i hope you don't miss the reason for it is in verse 27 it's because the father loves us will you please throw away if you carry it the image of an uncaring distant remote father sitting up on his throne moving the world around like a puppeteer just let's throw that away This father who needs to be pleaded with, can I please come into your presence? Bribed. I'm going to ask so-and-so, maybe because he's more holy or she's more holy, now I'll have access into your throne room. Let's get rid of that. I think those people, I think the saints, when we go to them to pray to them or whoever it might be, they would say, what are you doing? You can go directly to the father. You don't need You don't need me, friends, as his children. If you're on your notes, as his children. We can pray directly with and to our Father. Do you know that? It's important, those last two blanks there for me. We were just at a men's retreat this weekend. It was an awesome time together. And uh, we learned that prayer so often, we turn it into talking to my Father, right? Here's all the stuff you need to know about me. But prayer is also just being with my Father spending time with my Father, and he invites us to do it. He values that. He loves it. 
because he loves you. The author of Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews chapter 10. Just soak, soak in these words. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have what? Confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is, his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. That's just too good. That is too good. An infinite personal God has provided for me his enemy. Because of my sin. The opportunity to be adopted as his child. And to come into his throne room confidently. Confidently. You are made a child of God, a joint heir with Christ, and you can go directly to your Father. And what's more, Jesus tells us, if you're following on your notes there, that as his children, the Father delights to give us whatever we ask in Jesus' name. The Father delights to give us whatever we ask in Jesus' name. Heard a powerful story this week about a, a family, a couple who had adopted a, a child. This child was a little bit older, so obviously he had been scarred quite a bit. They brought the child home, and the first thing uh, the mom told the child, she said to the boy, she said, if it's mine, it's yours. If it's mine, it's yours. And so uh, the day goes on, the first day, and this child uh, goes up to the mom, the new mom, and says, there's a playground in the backyard. Is it okay if I go out there and play? And the mom said, what? If it's mine, it's yours. Next day comes along, he's like, hey, my brother and sister have a Wii. That's pretty awesome. Is it okay if I play with them? If it's mine, it's yours. Over and over, day after day, he just couldn't get over the fact that he's been adopted into this family, and what this family has now belongs to him. Friends, you've been adopted. And whatever belongs to Jesus Christ now belongs to you. You are a co-heir, we're told. You are a co-heir. What's mine is yours. Now, obviously, people have taken this. And I know what you're all thinking. Like, well, whatever I ask? Right? Let's, let's admit it. And people have taken that to literally mean, well, if I just tag in Jesus' name at the end of my prayer, it says right here, on a Rolls Royce, Lord, in Jesus' name. <laughs> I'm claiming it. I think it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. There's obviously stipulations, and the stipulations are found in those three words, in Jesus' name. What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? There's a number of things, but I want to point out two, just so there's no confusion on this. Number one, it implies, if you're on your notes, it is what would be good for us as his children, Right? If I'm praying in Jesus' name, I'm praying for something that would be good for us as his children. Now listen, I'm sure your kids are the same way. Our kids would eat candy all day, every day. And if they came to us and said, hey, we want candy, we want candy. What, you said, whatever we ask, whatever we ask. We wouldn't be very good parents if we just gave them candy all the time. 
And it's the same way with our Father. We're children. We come to Him. He's going to give us what He knows is best for us as His children. Second thing, the second requirement of praying in Jesus' name is that it's going to be in agreement with Christ's desire for our lives. It's in agreement with Christ's desire for our lives. That means we're going to be asking things that Christ wants for us, not what we just want for us. You've heard this before, but a definition of prayer is prayer is not a means by which we get God to do what we want him to do for us. That's not prayer. Prayer is a means by which God does through us what he wants to do through us. Am I opening myself up to that is the question. Am I opening myself? This happens, by the way. I, I note Romans 8 there in your notes. You might want to look that. How, how do I know I can pray in Jesus' name? It happens when we're filled by the Holy Spirit of God and our hearts are so in tune with God's will that we find ourselves praying the very things we know that Jesus would be praying for us. You know, where can we find the things that Jesus desires for us? Where can we find his desire for you? It's in that book you're holding. He wants us to be transformed, sanctified. Those are the things we pray. We can know for sure it's God's will, that it's Christ's desire in my life. These prayers he will answer. Third reason we can have joy even in hardship is because Jesus has secured our peace by overcoming the world. Jesus has secured our peace by overcoming the world. Look at verse 28. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Right there, one verse, the entire mission of Jesus Christ. I'm not of this world, but I entered into this world. And I did a work in this world, and I'm now going back to where I belong, at the right hand of my Father. Now amazingly, I love this, the disciples are like, we finally get it. Look at their response. They're not confused anymore, apparently. Look at verse 29. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Three years. We get it. Now listen, their enthusiasm is very touching. but It's still very insecurely based, isn't it? It reminds me a little bit of like young recruits to the army. They think once they learn the drills and once they are wearing the uniform, they're ready. I'm ready. And you've probably heard it before, the first battle that they enter, all that stuff. Whew. Maybe I'm not ready. Maybe I'm not ready for this. So look at Jesus' response in verse 31. You believe at last. I think the version I'm using, the NIV gets this wrong. That should be a question. How many of you have a question mark in your version instead? I think it should read, so you think you finally believe, do you? You think you finally believe, and that's a question we all have to face, right? Do I believe? Do I believe that only Christ can provide the joy transformation of my hardships and my grief and my separation from God? Do we believe that he can turn sorrow, the ultimate sorrow of my separation from God, he can turn that into a reason for joy. Their enthusiasm is touching, but it's shallow. They don't even know what real belief means yet. It's a shallow belief. That's why Jesus responds this way in verse 32. But a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. 
Did this happen? Mark 14, 50 says, the moment Jesus was arrested, everyone deserted him and fled. Everyone, that is, except his father. His father was with him. And it's the very same promise that you and I have as his children today. No matter what hardship we face, no matter what struggle we're up against, he will not leave us. Our Father is with us, even if nobody else is. And Jesus makes this unbelievable statement. Third reason we can have joy, even in sorrow, in verse 33. Let's read this out loud together. It says, I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Amazing words. Hours before the cross, Jesus claims victory. He says, in effect, I know that you're about to make a lot of mistakes. In fact, you're going to make some really big ones in the next couple hours. I know that you're going to have a lot of trouble in this world. Persecution, we learned about this two weeks ago. We can expect it as his disciples, can't we? I know that life is not going to be easy. The world will hate you, but cheer up. Literally, that's what take heart means. Did you know that? Cheer up! Cheer up. I've overcome. I have overcome the world. The victory is already won. I want to, on this Veterans Day, use an illustration that maybe was the most helpful I've ever heard about all this. Why can we really have joy, even in a world full of trouble? You know that D-Day in World War II was the day when the troops stormed the beaches of Normandy. And when those beaches were taken, essentially, victory was on the side of the Allies. The war was over, right? And yet it took a little bit under a year for VE Day to actually be declared. And I think that is such a perfect illustration of what we're dealing with here in this world. When did D-Day happen? On the cross of Jesus Christ. Victory has been guaranteed Ground has been taken. Satan no longer has any authority over this world, but we are living still between D-Day and V-E-Day. V-E-Day is coming sometime, and Jesus says, I've overcome the world. Yes, you're going to have some troubles for the time being, but victory is assured. It is promised. It is coming. Yes, the enemy will have a few victories here and there. Yes, evil is going to prosper. But the tanks are rolling in. Victory will be mine. This is why, I, I don't know, I guess I just don't get so worked up about elections one way or the other. I, I'm not saying that as Christians we shouldn't find that to be important. It is important. And we have a responsibility and duty to be engaged in the world and what's going on in the world. But ultimately, kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Presidents come and presidents go, but we stand on the sure foundation, which is Christ Jesus, our rock. We live in between D-Day and V-E-Day, but V-E-Day is coming, friends. So cheer up. I have overcome the world. George Morrison defined peace this way. Peace is the possession of adequate resources. I'm going to say that again. Peace is the possession of adequate resources. And listen, in Christ, we have all the resources we need in this world. 
whatever it throws our way. The key to that, I hope you see it in verse 33, two small little words we might just glance over, but it's those two words, in me. In me. It's the key to peace. In me, in ourselves, we have nothing. But if you're falling on your notes, in Christ, we have all that we need now and forever. Can I give you a parable? Maybe this will be helpful for us. Let's imagine right now that we live in a world that it was guaranteed that every hardship that you faced would turn into a greater blessing. So you lost your job. There is a guarantee coming that a better job is waiting for you. You just got a serious diagnosis. There is a guarantee that that illness will lead to even better health. You just came short on finances. There is a guarantee you are about to get the greatest raise ever. Now, in that kind of world, how would you regard each hardship? With dread or anticipation? With gloom or with joy? How would your belief affect your perseverance? Now, obviously, that world doesn't exist. We are not promised any of those things, quite honestly. But God has promised that he has overcome. I have overcome this world, and by that he means you're going to receive a far greater blessing than you could ever imagine in the world to come. I don't do this often. I use the screen on occasion, but if you're just still struggling with this idea, like, okay, what's the greater blessing? What's it going to be like? Can I really believe VE Day isn't coming? Can I really believe it's better than the troubles I have here? I just want to point to a number of verses from Revelation. This is Jesus speaking to us. This is what... It means that he has overcome. We have also overcome. So let me just read these rapid fire. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but he will acknowledge his name, but but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God. And he will be my son. Friends, why can we have joy in this life, even when things look bleak? We've been given a new life, a new birth, and it can never be taken away from us. We have been given direct access to the throne room of our Father who loves us. And we can have peace because the victory is assured. VE Day is coming. So I'll ask you the question as we close, am I experiencing the joy that Jesus provided? We don't have to be confused like the disciples were. We can choose joy. We can choose joy even in the midst of our hardships. 
and our sorrows and our struggles. Cheer up. Cheer up. I have overcome. Let's pray. Jesus, this is too good to be true, but it's true. And I pray that we would choose it today. Every single one of us in this room is probably carrying some sort of sorrow or grief or hardship with us. And it's so easy to get beaten down by this world. I know it. thank you that you have transformed even the deepest hardship into a reason for joy. We celebrate that together this morning as your children adopted, loved, secured with the promise that we will sit with your son on his throne as co-heirs and conquerors. We praise your name this morning. Amen. I haven't done this often. I actually can't even remember ever doing it, but I asked the praise team to actually sing a song. I made a song request <laughs> for our church this morning. This is a song. It's called Garments of Praise, written by an artist by the name of Robin Mark. This is the song, I've got to just be honest with you. If I'm ever in the middle of a trial, in a hardship, in grief, you can hear my car blasting this song full blast riding down the road. It has been a song that has uplifted my soul. It's helped me to remember I can still choose joy. It's based off of these words from Isaiah 61, the words that Jesus quoted about his very work here on earth. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and to release from darkness the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. We usually get that far, but this song is based on this next promise. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Can I just invite you? This is the song that the team was playing as you walked in to join us as we trade our sorrow for joy. <laughs>